0: All right, today we are talking about Joshua and Israel, this new generation of Israelites going to the promised land and right up to the edge. They've been fed by manna from heaven and quail brought in by the east wind. God has brought water from rock and kept their clothes and sandals from decay. God has dwelt among them as he said he would. They have learned how to become physically and spiritually Spiritually clean. Armies have come against them in waves and have been defeated completely by the power of the God who leads them. And despite all this, Moses has had to endure constant grumbling and mistrust and even death threats. There was even a rebellion that God had to punish himself by swallowing the rebels up in the earth. After all this, Israel has finally come out of the desert and settled on the edge of the promised land and what's really tragic is that they'd already been here that the generation of those who came before got up to the edge of the promised land they chickened out and they were pushed back into the desert by God who knew that this was not the generation to step out in obedience and take the land so Deuteronomy is really full of speeches by Moses reminding them all that God has done for them. He was with your parents, even in their rebellion. And that's kind of a precious thing to look at, is that even though that generation completely failed God and were punished, God was with them no matter what. He was walking in their punishment with them. And if you've really, really messed up um it's good to know that even as you're punished that god will be with you and Joshua and Caleb were the leaders Moses passed away on a mountain and on that mountaintop he got to see the promised land that his people would take and the reason he didn't get to go to the promised land is because uh there was a there was a first time where he broke a rock and water came out. There was a second time where instead of going to God, he just got mad and basically said, you stubborn, angry, awful people and smashed the rock. And the water was bitter uh, because of Moses's presumption of being the judge and the jury in that situation. And God told him, you will not see the promised land. It's pretty sad uh, for Moses. And yet they were so awful to him and so mistrusting and i can't uh, can't blame him for losing his temper and ultimately he got to see the old, the the best promised land and that is heaven and there'll be a time in the future where he gets to minister and encourage the savior of all humanity and set foot on the mount of transfiguration on the promised land and so that's kind of this beautiful gesture to moses by god is you Someday you will set foot. But we don't know where his body was. And there's also some mystery as to what was done with his body. And a place in the New Testament talks about how it was disputed over by Michael the archangel and Satan. So we have a commentary here saying that, basically guessing at what happened when Moses went up to the mountain and passed. So they go in and there's this angel of the Lord that has been with him the whole time and I really want to make a big deal about this angel of the Lord because he's mysterious, he doesn't really have a name and yet he accepts worship and so would an angel accept worship? It's kind of a question you have to ask when, especially when you're talking with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons because they want to take Jesus down from God to angel. The Mormons will say he's the spirit brother of Satan. The Jehovah's Witnesses will say that he is a created thing, that he may be the son of God, but he hasn't always been, which contradicts quite a lot of Scripture. So here you have an angel called the angel of the Lord, and he, he appears to Joshua, And Joshua asks his name, and he just says, the Lord of heaven's armies. And then he says, take off your shoes, or your sandals, they didn't have shoes, for this is holy ground. And Joshua does. And this angel is accepting a man bowing before him. And not only that, but he says, where you're standing, take off those sandals. They they contain the dust of cursed ground. And wherever I set my feet, I make this ground holy. So what are your options? Your option is either it is Satan, because he's the only angel, and maybe it's a fallen angel, maybe it doesn't have to be Satan, but it's either Satan or a fallen angel accepting worship as God, or it's the angel of the Lord who accepts worship as God, and then you have to ask, well, what are, are there any other parts in the Bible where an angel is bowed down to? And there are there's several, and what happens when it's an angel? that is bowed down to, they quickly say, get up, get up. I am a created thing just like you. I am not God. This specific angel of the Lord does not say that. He's not Satan. He's the commander of heaven's armies and he makes the ground holy wherever he sets foot. It's got to be Jesus. I don't see any other option if you just logically look at it. So that means Jesus was alive before he was alive. He has always been. There's a few prophecies that hint at that, that it's not just a son of David, but it's someone who's been around before David. David, And there's a, the prophecy that Jesus uses, the Lord said to my Lord, and it's a prophecy of David. Who was David talking about? He's talking about his descendant who was also his Lord. And how is that possible? It's Because Jesus has always been, he is right now, and he always will be. And he was there with Israel throughout their times in the desert and throughout their taking back the promised land. He was their fighter. And he, that's what Jesus does. He fights for us. And we get to march to the cross with him throughout the Bible and learn that part of his fighting for us is him dying for us because we're worth that much to him. So here he is with Joshua and he gives him a battle plan because the first city they have to take is Jericho. It's right in a strategic point, a trade route close to the sea, close to a river, and you have to take this city. But the problem is it has giant walls and it's been known for defending those walls very well. So the battle plan is, and I would just kind of be stunned when I heard it if I was Joshua, is to walk around the city with the Ark of the Covenant and all your soldiers. And the trumpets will blow. And you walk around seven times for seven days. And on the very last day, you the trumpets will blow and you shout really loud. And the walls are going to come down and you can charge in. It's really... I guess these strategic minds of heaven are very different than the strategic minds of earth. And they have a different way of opening up a city than siege engines or hooks or ladders or tunnels underneath. So Joshua sends out spies, they check the city out and there's a, a woman who them, recognizes them for who they are and hides them from the guards because the guards have been alerted that there may be spies in the city. And then she asked these spies if when they come and take out Jericho, would they spare her family? And this woman is, we don't know if she herself is a prostitute, but she's running a brothel. Her name, she is called Rahab the harlot. But she says that the fear of your God is throughout all the lands and they're trembling because of you. And she makes a complete severing of her her citizenship, but also of her worship of those gods. She doesn't trust them. She doesn't give them any credit for strength or anything like that. She trusts in the God of Israel and knows that this God is coming and she wants to be on his side. So remember the name Rahab the harlot. And they tell her, if you hang out a red rope out of your window, then everyone will know We will. this is Rahab's house. We will not destroy it and take anything from it or hurt anyone in it. So the battle plan works perfectly. They walk around seven times on the seventh day and they shout really loud and the walls come down and they sweep in and enemy after enemy fall to Joshua and to Caleb and to the tribes of Israel. And it gets to a point where there's really too much land to take. And God shows his foresight by telling them that if they had defeated all their enemies immediately, there would not be enough Israelites to fill the cities And the wilderness would take back the land and it's easy to witness that if you've ever seen how weeds come in and take the land pretty quickly. But Joshua and Caleb and all the heroes of their generation die at a ripe old age and they're surrounded by family and respected by all of God's people. Phineas the priest was another great one. Uh, Many people think that he kind of added some commentary to the first five books of the Bible as such as Moses went up to the mountain and died there and another one is Moses was the most humble man on earth because it would be kind of weird if Moses wrote that about himself. But these leaders, these heroes of their generation who were with them all throughout the desert, right up to the promised land, as they got kicked out, Joshua and Caleb were preserved in strength and then they come back to the promised land and Joshua and Caleb are still there, winning victory after victory, and now they pass. And it says that while they were alive, they obeyed God. They were the kind of nation that they always should have been, that God wanted for them. And according to the law, if Israel obeys the laws given by God, they will be blessed beyond all other nations. God will be their king and their priests other ones, who will reveal his will for his people. And all the people had to do was live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God. That sounds pretty simply simple. It's kind of a, another one that you want on your gravestone. This person lived justly, they loved mercy, and walked humbly with their God. And if they did that, all of the blessings of heaven were at their fingertips. God had promised that no famine or drought would ever overtake them, that no child would be lost in childbirth, No plagues or sicknesses would afflict them, such as the ones in Egypt, and no enemy would defeat them. All they had to do was obey God, and when they sinned, go to the temple and offer a sacrifice to be forgiven and renewed. Sounds simple, right? Judges, chapter 2. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things He had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, who had brought them out of Egypt, they went after one another, after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. They angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtaroth. This made the Lord burn with anger against them. So he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned. And the people were in great distress. Then we see in the next verse, and the picture that paints really is of a God who is just done. He's been through so much with these people. And he says, I'm not protecting you. I told you, I warned you that this would happen. Not only does he not fight for them, he fights against them. And so they're crying out, they're miserable. They're in basically slavery again. And then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. You know how God feels when you sin and you love it and you don't really feel bad about it and you don't go to him for forgiveness. He feels like you just cheated on him, like you just slept with someone else. That's harsh on our side. I think we need to, to view sin... In a proper way, how would we feel if the person we loved went to somebody else and gave them their heart? Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So the Lord burned with anger against Israel. He said, Because these people have violated my covenant, which I made with their ancestors, and have ignored my commands, I will no longer drive out the nations that Joshua left unconquered when he died. I did this to test Israel, to see whether or not they would follow the ways the Lord... their." the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. That is why the Lord left those nations in place. He did not quickly drive them out or allow Joshua to conquer them, to conquer them all. And so you have a the first reason that God gave them was so the wilderness would not overtake them. And there was another reason. It was to see what they would do. Would they be tempted by marriages in that land, by worshiping their gods, by adding their gods to the worship of the one true God? And this pretty much sums it up. It's, uh, the Bible does a good job of summarizing itself of how it was in the days of the judges of Israel. One thing that is easy to, to observe, observe is that the first few judges were righteous. They were great. They were God obeying men and, and there was also a woman, a female judge, Deborah. And she commanded people. And here's another woman in the Old Testament being raised up by God. And this one is a judge over his entire nation. There was a general who came and asked for a battle plan. She sought the Lord's wisdom, gave it to him. And he said, I'm not going unless you go. That's how big of a deal she was. They had good reputations with all the people and did not cheat them or abuse their power. These first, I think it's four or five judges. As Israel falls further into corruption so do their judges. We have a great example of a confusing person in, in Samson, and we know him kind of as the Bible version of the Hulk. Whenever he really needed it and he lost his temper or he really wanted to do something or had to escape, we don't know if he got huge or if he was huge or if he was just a regular-looking guy who, when the Spirit came upon him, was given the strength of, they say, ten men. But he sleeps around, he disobeys his parents, and he ends up being betrayed by a woman who he's sleeping with. He is not a man that you would want your kids to be like. And yet he was judge over Israel. We have the one of the last judges before we get to a great judge, Eli. He steals from the people, and his own sons bring prostitutes into the priestly quarters where only worshipers should go. It has become so corrupt that Closest to the Holy of Holies, there's priests, the sons of Eli, bringing prostitutes into the temple. And the tribe of Levi has been left to fend for itself. Remember, they're a big deal. They're meant to be provided for by the rest of Israel while they worked in the temple and lived their lives teaching the people about this God who has done so much for them. They were the firstborn sons that God passed over in Egypt. And instead of taking a person from each tribe, he, he created Levi, the tribe, to be that firstborn. So all of Israel owed their lives to the tribe of Levi. And if you want a barometer on the righteousness of Israel, you have to see how they treat the Levites. And in Judges, it's an absolute mess. There's a story of Micah, who there was a wandering Levite, and he said, well, come on, why don't you be my Levite? And really just used them to... Feel righteous and to feel great about himself, and it's a story of manipulation and really a, a fallen spirituality in Israel. And then Judges gets pretty dark, and there's the story of the Levite and his concubine, a wandering Levite again. Uh, there's there's several stories of a, a Levite wandering around when they should have been in the temple, being provided for by the people and honoring God, sacrificing for the people and teaching about this good God. Instead, he's wandering around, not with his wife, but with a concubine. And they go to a town and much like Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of the town see some strangers and they knock on the door and say, hey, send these people out so we can have our way with them. And it's in the tribe of Benjamin that this is happening. Instead of going out himself and facing these men, he sends out his concubine and they have their way with her and they kill her. And he wakes up in the next morning and finds her dead body And he's really mad because he's such a good guy, right? No. Um, But he cuts her body up and sends (coughs) the parts of her body throughout Israel saying, look what has been done to me, to my concubine. And Israel is outraged. And so they come and they fight with the men of Benjamin. And the men of Benjamin are good warriors. They're all left-handed. They sling stones like experts. And eventually lose. And so in the aftermath of this giant mess trying to fix things that should have never been wrong in the first place, you have a tribe now that has no fighting men. They have a bunch of women who don't have kids because they weren't married long enough and an entire tribe of Israel could potentially be wiped out. So their solution is, in this great mess, there's there's just no good way out of it. They send a bunch of their young men to take these wives and kind of create the tribe of Benjamin throughout or through a mixture of other men from other tribes. And just like in the story of Joseph, Benjamin is protected by Judah and kind of becomes really a part of Judah and never really leaves his side. And so in 1 Samuel, we see it begins with the corrupt judge Eli being given a prophecy through a, Boy named Samuel, and Samuel's mother could have no children. She was married to a man who had another wife, never a good idea, never commanded by God, always ends poorly. And this other wife had plenty of kids, and so she's desperate. She's in the temple, she's weeping, and it's really a hysterical, heartbroken prayer to God. And Eli sees it and says, Woman, why are you drunk in the temple? Get out of here. And she says, I'm not drunk. And she explains her situation. And she says, if God gives me a son, I will give him to the temple. And that's who Samuel is. And during the night, after some confusion that it's is this Eli calling to me, and Eli realizes this is God calling, he gives Samuel a prophecy that Samuel knows Eli doesn't want to hear, but Eli says, you better tell me, kind of threatens him a little bit. But the prophecy is Eli and his sons will die on the same day as punishment for perverting all that should have been holy. And as is common with all of God's prophecies, it happens just like He said it would. And Israel now looks to the young man Samuel. And after all these messed up judges, Samuel is a great judge. He's respected and well liked by the people, and he breaks the line of corruption and is a lover of God. He teaches the law and makes sacrifices for the people. He is a good man. And it seems as if Eli raised Samuel in the way that he should have raised his own sons. And maybe it was a second chance for redemption for Eli. And after many years of having Samuel, a good judge ruling over them, and it's not really ruling when you have a judge. it's They're just a representative for God and a reminder that God is with his people. At this time, God was their king. There was no king. Israel's elders gather everyone together and ask Samuel to anoint a king Because everyone else has one. Never a good idea to make decisions based on what everyone else has. You should never compare your life, your marriage, your finances, your anything to someone else. You have what you have. And it's enough. And it's what God has chosen to give you. So, Samuel pleads with them to remember that God is their king and protector. They ignore him and ask again for a king. So Samuel goes to God, and he gets a surprising answer. God says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods, and now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And that line for they are rejecting me, not you, is a great one to remember Anytime you reach out with grace and get spit on or get made fun of or share the gospel with somebody or invite them to church and get rejected. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the God you love. And it's sad, but it's also, for me, just an encouraging reality that I'm doing the best I can do to share Christ with someone and it's not me they're rejecting. And really, God is telling Samuel, now you know how it feels. This has happened to me since I've known these people. Samuel reminds him of the law slash prophecy that was given to them long ago. This was no surprise to God. It's, it's pretty cool that in the law, God knew eventually they would ask for a king. So he wrote down a ways a law, a way for kings to act. And really, they were meant to be the perfect Hebrew, the perfect Israelite, a husband of one wife. Uh, A man who knew how to repent, a man who would fight with his own people. Really, he would be one of the people. But it's the warning that as good as this king might be, he will demand soldiers and taxes. He will take your food, your young women and young men will serve him. And Samuel basically said, as you go, the king will go, and as the king goes, you will go. You're no longer looking to God when you should know that he is your king. And so Saul is selected by Samuel, and he's anointed by God, and he's a young, tall, strong, handsome Benjamite, and it says that he's a full head taller than anyone. He's nearly a giant. If everyone around there was 5'8", he'd be 6'5". He was a big fella. And so you have this king selected, and it's the king, that they think they want. It's it's really truly the king they deserve. Someone who's outwardly wonderful looking and inwardly we're going to see what strength Saul has. But so begins in Israel the age of the kings. It's very Lord of the Rings sounding. So let's pray. Father, we look at the history of Israel and Wonder at how they could ask for a king when they had you. How they could ask for security and strength and something to look at when they had you. And yet, how often, Lord, do we do that? We ask for proof that you're going to take care of us. And when it's not done in our timing, we want to fix it ourselves. As we see so many times in the Bible, but we also see it week by week, day by day, in our own lives, in our own families of just trying to get what we think we deserve without asking you if we deserve it, if we need it, if we can have it. And Lord, you've always been more than gracious with your children and given us more than we could ever need. But you also, Lord, give us exactly what we need and you teach us and you punish us, you discipline us, you grow us and you refine us through these fires that life throws at us. And Lord, as we walk through this fire of this time, help us to trust you. Help us to live justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. In your name, Jesus. Amen.